0: The libraries, in that sense, it's not a place where books live. To me, it's a community and a place where knowledge lives. Hi, I'm Simon Squibb, the founder of The Purposeful Project, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good Experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, GUT, GUT, UWT and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Simon Squibb, entrepreneur, investor, author, podcast host, social media influencer, and mentor who strongly believes in luck, hence the name of his podcast, The Good Luck Pot. He built 18 companies and invested in 65. He's currently on a mission to help 1 million people find their purpose and start their own businesses, doing it all for free. So, Simon, thank you so much for being on God Talks. And I can't wait to dive in. I'm really looking forward to this. How are you?
0: Likewise. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really good. Thank you. Coming at you from London, where it's been snowing all day here, which has been beautiful. And yeah, all is good.
1: And I just want to mention to the audience, actually, those who know you, they certainly know Aiden, who's your three-year-old son. Unfortunately, I'm not that lucky tonight to have a duo with Simon and Aiden on the show because it's a bit late in the evening. So I'm going to kick this off with luck. Everything revolves around luck for you, from your podcast to your book, your TEDx talk and everything else, and Clubhouse. We're going to get into that later. What is luck for you? It's a
0: long answer. How long have I got?
1: Oh, well, all night long.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, I have a real uh, obsession with luck. I have from a very young age when I had a very, I guess, a bad piece of luck. My father suddenly died when he was 56. I was 15. And I think in that moment, I thought I was very unlucky. I felt like, why has this happened to me? And really from that moment, I kind of, Twig to this concept of good luck and bad luck and try and analyze what actually makes it happen and fast forward to i left home and school at 15 and started a company and retired at 40 and when i sat down to write how i'd made it i guess you know what i'd done to get to this point of having no home at 15 and no money to basically being able to retire if i want to And I tried to analyze it by writing down what had happened, the stories, the things that had taken place. And as I wrote them down, I kind of realized this thread in each of the moments where I had been successful. When I'd failed, I could always easily put it down to a particular mistake that I could learn from. But when I succeeded, it was very hard to pinpoint why. And I could only attribute it to luck. So then I wondered, what is luck? And I did this whole thing about a three-year research background kind of check on people that had been very lucky and tried to figure out what they'd done that was similar. And I noticed that to be lucky in life, everyone I spotted who'd been lucky in life had three key elements in their lives to make themselves more lucky. Now, I just caveat that luck is broken into two parts under my research. The first is what I'm going to call random luck, um, which is actually only about 2% of your life is random luck. And that would be, for example, where you're born. You really have no control over that. There's nothing you can do to influence it. You are born where you are born. And then, of course, things like coronavirus that come along. These things are not something you can control. They are simply you know, things that happen, and then you have to react to them. Now, the other part of luck, the 98% of what actually happens to people is completely, you have the ability to influence it. And in fact, if you influence it properly, you can also influence the 2%. So in other words, if you're born into a difficult situation in life but you act within the parameters that I've discovered for luck in the 98%, you can actually turn that that what's perceived as a negative being born into poverty, for example. It is a negative in the eyes of most people, but actually how you can turn it into a positive. Um, We know plenty of rap stars and boxers that have come from poverty that have learned to sing about it and talk about it and fight because of it. And they've leveraged it into that 98%. So, But the 98% is it, you can influence it. And the simple version of this, keep it short, is the three steps are you've got to be willing to take a lot of risk. And the saying I, I think is completely wrong is the harder you work, the luckier you get. That is not true. I would go as far as to say that's a lie. I think personally that work. if I worked less hard, I actually was more successful. If I delegated, for example, I was more successful. And so, but fear, without doubt, kicks in when you take risk, but you've got to learn to embrace fear and lean into risk. And the truer saying is the more risk you take, the luckier you get. And the other two elements are pretty much persistence. You've got to be permanently pushing and you've got to know when to quit, but you've also got to know when to keep following through. So one example I use is I started a company called Fluid in Hong Kong, And when we started that company, we wrote down, uh, me and my partner, 50 companies we wanted to work with when we opened up the business. It took us nine years to get all 50 companies on board as clients. And every single month from the time we wrote down that company name until we got them as a client, we sent something to them every month somehow. Whether it was a Christmas present, a Chinese New Year present, we looked for any excuse, you know, Easter happy birthday happy company anniversary whatever a useful bit of information about the industry trends whatever it was every single month for nine years we would make contact with that company until we got all 50 clients and that's persistence for you and then the final thing to increase your chances of luck is knowing your destination so many people don't know actually where they're going or why they're going there and i think i invested a lot of startups so when someone asked me for investment i always ask them what is their destination and quite often, people will say, oh, we're going to sell this company to Uber. They're going to buy it for 500 million and, you know, maybe a billion. And that, that's the plan. And, and actually, I say to them that that financial reward is actually just fuel for the car. That's not your destination. And once you know your destination, you actually know how much fuel you really need, both in a personal level and on a company level. And once you know your destination, you know what sort of people you want in the car with you because you know how long the journey is and you know what to pack in the car. So when you arrive at that destination or en route, you know what you might need. So once you know your destination, lots of other decisions can be made. And people don't do those three things quite often. They don't take enough risk. They're not persistent enough. And they don't know their destination. But if you do those three things, that's the reason I'm successful. Because I was lucky and I leveraged luck by applying that three-step rule.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Not everyone applies, actually, what you're talking about. But going back to what you mentioned about where you were born and so on, I can relate to that because I was born in Lebanon, actually, and during the war, and I... Lived my early childhood during the war, then we escaped to Cyprus and then came back to Lebanon. But it was always uncertainty, not secured, not a secure place because of the region and the political things. But it teaches you so much to adapt anywhere, not to just be blinkered in a certain way. But it takes away other things, not worrying when you're a kid and so on. So I relate to that one. But going back to luck. So you focus on that so much, and this is one of the main things, actually, I learned about you when I started following you and got to e-meet you. For me, it's gut, gut feelings, and this is why I named my design innovation hub, gut, and gut talks as a podcast. Mm -hmm. And this leads me to asking you if... (laughs) You trust and follow your gut in your decision making process in work and in life from investing to working with someone and anything really because especially today with coronavirus we get to meet people virtually so we kind of like seeing body language and all of this so we need to focus on all senses hmm.
0: it's a really interesting thing i know a lot of people say follow your gut and i get it however i think there's a slight flaw in the system when it comes to following your gut. And I think some people can follow their gut and they get it right because of their early years training and other people follow their gut and get it wrong because of their early years training. And so a lot of it is about, for me, is about the subconscious bias that we have or the subconscious training we got. So I've done a lot of research again around, you know, zero to seven. I've got a three-year-old, you see, so in zero to seven years. You don't really remember those years. Why? Because actually it's kind of your hardwired years it's the back-end programming you can't remember it all that's why your mind doesn't let you remember it all it's literally absorbing how to read how to walk how to talk how to socialize it's all kind of this born or bred thing that's the what you're born with alongside what you're bred with zero to seven is so critical and so for example my mother is racist so therefore i grew up racist accidentally as i entered my 11 12 13 14 year age point um if i listen to my gut this is just one example, but if I listen to my gut, I'm actually racist. So my gut is wrong, right? And that's really gut is more. You know, we all know your gut has a lot of your brain there, right? A large part of your thing yeah. In your gut, but if your cortex, your main part of your brain, is not correct, the basis of your house after that is a bit flawed, right? So I think the short answer to your simple question, for the long answer to your simple question, is what I'm saying now. The short answer to it is that I think actually you can listen to your gut when you've opened up your mind and reprogrammed yourself to see the real world. So another example of that is if you say to someone, do you want to start your own business or do you want to work for someone else, right? People's gut instinct is that it's safer to work for someone else, right? Nine out of 10 times, I've done research on this, so I know this to be true. Nine times out of 10 people say it's safer to get a job, right? But now I've reprogrammed my mind, seen the world. I know the truth. The truth is the opposite. The truth is it's actually a lot riskier to work for someone else because you don't know what's going to come down the line. You could get fired at any minute and wouldn't know it. They have a financial problem you're not aware of. They have to get rid of you. Might not even be malice. It's just the way the business is run and you might not be in control of it. Nine out of 10 people, again, have no idea what's actually happening at Enron. The day before anyone goes under right so a lot of the time and actually working for someone else feels easy at the beginning gets harder over time but working for yourself is harder at the beginning gets easier over time and so i'm able to retire at 40 because i've been self-employed since 15. if i'd been employed since 15 i would be working even harder now which is what is the case for most people my age they are working twice as hard as they were in their early career not twice as less as i am right So basically, I think your gut, you can trust it if you train your subconscious correctly.
1: I like that answer and I actually get different answers each time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take that one on board because obviously it comes from experience and relating back to when you're saying people think it's safer to go for a job rather than starting their own business. It's because they've been trained as well as kids that, okay, where do you want to work after and so on. So it's really a part of the culture as well. I mean, when I quit my job, because I started initially as a self-employed individual, then I went to work for a corporation, then went back and everyone telling me, you're crazy, you're mad, the amount of taxes you're going to pay. So these are the things people think of rather than thinking about the journey and what you're actually building. So... I want to ask you, and this is what you're actually trying to do, right? Help a million entrepreneurs start their business. So why are you doing this? What made you do what you do?
0: The simple answer is um, I'm doing it because I can. And I think that the doctors out there right now that are helping people on the front line with coronavirus are heroes. And I don't have that skill set. So what can I bring to the table? What can I contribute to society and its problems right now? I know business. You know, I have a story. I left school at 15 with nothing, no network. I you know, didn't go to a fancy university. I didn't have loads of friends that were rich. I didn't have any money. I didn't know about business and I still made it because I applied myself and I discovered entrepreneurship. No one taught it to me at school. Big mistake by schools. Even today It's seen as a weird thing that only a few people can do. It's not true. No, one's born a doctor. No, one's born a lawyer. There's lots of different types of lawyers. There's lots of different types of doctors. So I feel like there's a big gap and a misunderstanding about entrepreneurship, that it's this thing that only certain people can do. It's not true, but just like everything else, people need training to do it. But I think I'm doing it for two reasons today to answer the question simply. First of all, because I think there's a need in the market. People can't find a job. So I want to help them create one for themselves and not be reliant on someone else to give them a job because it's not as hard as it sounds. With a bit of training, anyone can do it. And it's incredibly rewarding I'm not saying it's easy, but working for someone else isn't easy either. So that's one element. The other element is I'm going back to the 15 year old me, to be honest. Most of the people I help are more like in their 20s and 30s. But conceptually, I had no one telling me things that I wish someone had told me when I was 15. No one showed me how to find a co-founder or explain to me the dynamics of a co-founder and how to make a co-founder relationship work. No one taught me how to get deals done and create sales channel opportunities. So I had to learn it all on my own. Literally, there was no internet either, didn't help, but it was painful and lonely, and I, and I feel like there was no need for any of that. But weirdly, I still see a gap in the market today. You know, business schools charge a fortune, and that means a lot of people can't afford them. Plus, even if you do spend some ridiculous amount on a business school, it doesn't really teach you about business. It's like reading about push-ups, right? It doesn't teach you to do a push-up.
1: It just teaches you
0: what what it might do to your muscles and and what other people have done when they've done push-ups. It's not really useful. It's not really taught nine times out of 10, again, uh, by real entrepreneurs. There are some universities that do teach real entrepreneurs. But the point I'm trying to make is you don't need to charge $200,000 for one of these courses, especially now with the internet. And so I'm in kind of a frame of mind of helping the 15-year-old me and ensuring that we don't lose a generation of talent to COVID.
1: That's very humble of you to be doing what you're doing. And I'm going to touch on this later. But I want to ask you because I know you're building a team around you to help you do what you do because you have a podcast, you have, you're have saving libraries, you're, uh, you're writing a book, you're helping entrepreneurs and so on. So what's the relationship you have with the team around you because you want to encourage people not to work for someone, but to do their own thing?
0: This is a really interesting thing because... The purposeful project i had three people working for me and i am permanently trying to help them start a business of their own however talia who's kind of my right hand person on this business it's interesting because when she first started i said to her look you know i will be your main client but i think you have the ability to create your own company which i believe everyone has and so that's how we started off the relationship because i don't want her to be trapped working for me But as she started working with me, and this is very important, I think, there are some people that are better off joining someone else's company. They don't necessarily have an idea themselves, but that does not mean they're not entrepreneurs. So the way I look at someone like Talia, for example, she doesn't want to go start her own business. She believes so heavily in what I'm doing that I will make her a partner in what I'm doing. And that's another way to go. Elon Musk did not invent PayPal. He did not even come up with the idea PayPal. He came up with his own idea and then he saw what PayPal was doing with Peter Thiel and the team there. He joined their team. Right. So, you know, it's not entrepreneurship isn't just about you starting something on your own and, you know, lonely and doing it. It is also sometimes about recognizing your strengths and joining with someone else who has opposite strengths in an ideal world, but same moral code and same mission. And you can team up with people. And to me, you know, I still see my team as self-employed. Connor, who also works for me, I said the same to him. You have the ability to do your own company. And so I will be your main client. In his case, he does production of all my content. And he now has his own company. I am not his only client. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to practice what I preach, which is actually we're all potentially entrepreneurs, but we all have different styles, all different types of doctors, right? Some doctors like to work within a GP environment, and they're all their customers are kind of come through the NHS in England, for example. They don't have to go out and find clients because they don't like that, and they just sit there all day helping people, and that's what they like. But there are other people that have a Harley Street location; they get their own clients. They don't mind the marketing side, and they, you know, they run it themselves. But they're both doctors; they've just got a different preference in the infrastructure, right? So entrepreneurs are the same. I think it's entrepreneurship is really the key is freedom. You have the freedom to do what you want every day. And everybody that works for me has that. They have the freedom to one day say, Simon, I'm now setting up my own company and I will back them because I'm not locking them in to the trap that people try to do of, you know, work for me until you die. It doesn't make sense unless our missions are aligned and they have part of the upside and whatever happens in the business.
1: These are your entourage, like people really close to you. What about the rest of the people who are coming to your platform? You're helping them all the time you're on all social media platforms giving 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 and how would you measure the impact you're actually making because Mm. you're reaching out to a million entrepreneurs
0: yeah it's a really tricky one because we have this discussion internally quite a lot like what have we achieved this week what are the measurable authentic results of our efforts this week and i think Maybe um, one channel on one day, as an example, on Saturday, we did what we call startup radio all day on Clubhouse from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. And during that time, 187 people came on and asked a question and we helped them with that question. 187 people. Now, what they then go on to do with that information, whether they go on to then become the next Uber or go on then to just provide a, a nice income for their family to have a nice, comfortable life or whether they still go on to fail with or without our advice is sometimes the hard thing for us to measure, right? But that's just one example. If we can help 187 people with a question in a day with our expertise and, and not sell them anything and just help them purely, then I think I consider that a win. I've put some videos out on YouTube, for example, maybe they've had a couple of thousand views, which some people would consider a failure, but I know through feedback, I'm thinking of one video in particular where six people wrote back and said, it's changed their business forever that video, forever. Made their business stronger, made them survive, meant they haven't had to lay off people. They've improved their systems on sales, for example, which was this particular video. And, And once I see that we've helped those six people, it doesn't matter about the views, it matters about the impact, right? It doesn't matter about the likes, it matters about the impact. So we measure it by the feedback we get from the market. Now we have also measured that we have helped seventy-four people start a company and today they're growing their business. That's a little bit easier for us to you know actually track because someone says, Oh, you know, I'm coming to you at Verizon, I have a business idea, we give them advice and then they start their company and we can follow them. That doesn't mean to say they're all going to succeed because part of this journey, whether you work for someone else or work for yourself, is failure. But that's how we're measuring impact right now. I mean, I also measure impact through sometimes comments. So one of my TikTok videos got 1.8 million views and 14,000 comments, and I've replied to every single one of those comments. Now, whether it's useful information every time or relevant or detailed enough, all these things are up for grabs and to be questioned. But the spirit of it is there in place, where we try to give people helpful, useful, honest, authentic advice so that their lives are better. Um, But how do we measure it? I think it's just over time trying to check with the market. Have we provided any value? And people giving us feedback is the only way we can actually check on that.
1: This makes me think of a personal experience I had a few years ago because I teach in different universities, business and design schools. And um, if you have 40 students, it doesn't matter. You're not going to expect all of them to get what you're talking about. They might think you're talking like whatever, they wouldn't get it. it is foreign language. But after a few months or at the end of the semester, you get one person who's like, ah, that's, that makes it. Mm-hmm. I experienced that one, and it was so rewarding that it's just here all the time. So I get what you mean in that sense. But I have another question for you. And actually, this came to my mind when I was on Clubhouse, because I've been to some of your rooms. And um, I realized that there are quite a few of you moderating rooms and providing value. This is a great thing. I mean, Clubhouse has the good, the bad and everything. And it's also an opportunity for everyone to leverage on other person's network as well. It's a great tool for that, especially now in its early days. What you're doing, you're doing it for free because you can, because you want to add value. And this is your contribution to the world and the society. Now, some other people might be doing something similar or close enough, but they do it for a living I'm not saying you're going to put some people out of pocket, but would you represent a certain risk for some people? Because what you're doing is valuable and free at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting, great area. To me, you're asking two questions here. One element is, am I putting people out of business by doing what they do and charge for free? My feeling is it's impossible. The market is so big. You see, I paid for things and had no value from it. Right. So one of the elements of this, and this is the second question I feel like is being talked about here is like, what is the value of free? And so to me, I've run businesses in the past where I've charged a service fee and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. People pay you for your knowledge. And then I've I've also had a business where I've taken equity in a company because I've given advice again. Fair enough. Right. But every time I've done that personally, I feel like I've missed out a certain segment of society. Those that don't have money to pay for me or the people that don't have a company with equity that's worth anything. I would say millions of people that need help that can't afford those two things. You know, I I can hear on the other end of the line that the kind of people that sell courses and stuff saying, well, it's only $59. Yes, but that can often mean, I know people in England that can't afford to pay for the internet. So it's 30 pounds a month on average for the internet in the UK. That is equivalent to two or three meals for families on the budget. Yeah, so they either don't eat for three days or they have the internet. And they're literally making a decision not to have the internet. How do I know this? Because I see them at libraries trying to get online. So they don't have the internet. So when someone's saying, oh, no one values anything unless you pay for it, you know, £59 isn't much. They haven't lived in an environment that's real, you know. And we get people from all over the world, by the way. I mean, England's meant to be a modern society, but there's a huge amount of people here That are living like that. But you know, you start going further afield and you know, you start going to some of the African countries and stuff, they're literally living on a dollar a day. And I don't feel like they deserve to be missed out. And so they don't want to service that market, the group you just kind of mentioned, because they've got no money. So I'm servicing it. And so I'm not eating their pie because there will always be people that are willing to throw money at a course. I'm just saying, you know, I'm saying to people generally they don't need to pay for a course, but I'm not saying don't pay for a course. If you think it could bring you value, then do it. And there are a lot of people out there, in fairness, that actually bring good value. I can think of a few that actually bring good value to people, even though you pay them. I think it can bring value. So that's why I don't like it when people say free has no value, because I can honestly say free has the most amount of value. When you give someone something that is useful and you give it to them free when they can't afford it, it's the most valuable thing you can ever give them. You know, I,
1: I agree on that one. I also think free has value and actually people who also charge do lots of things for free Yeah. and then make money on the back end. Yeah, uh, I'm mean, because-
0: I, I, I just cautious of scams. That's all I'm cautious yeah. of, of ever endorsing. Because free leads to like a funnel, right, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A funnel leads to like £59 or $59 mm-hmm. and now upgrade to $2,000. Now give me your life savings with false promises. And I, I want to help people avoid that trap. And so I'm not that I'm judging, but I I want people to be aware of it at least and don't have the suspicion of free. i kind of want to break the image that free is actually a trick, right? Like I've got my book coming out and someone approached me and they said, Simon, give the book away for free and charge for shipping. So the book is (laughs) free, but it's all a trick, you know? And I I just kind of want to avoid all that stuff. You know, like I think I give the book for free to help people for free, that's it. No no funnel I'm going to put you into and blast you a hundred times until you buy something, right? It just feels like we've gone the wrong way on sales. Instead of like just trusting people and connecting authentically, yeah. it's all about getting people into a funnel and upselling them. So I'm trying this model free and so far so good because it's servicing that I've never been helped before.
1: Based on the funnel thing you mentioned, this you touched on my one of my frustrations basically because I like authenticity and transparency from the beginning. So if you want to sell something, just say it. Don't just make me click by mistake and put my credit card details to hopefully make me, you know, go through the wrong route because the button is yellow or green or whatever to move forward. Okay. Now that's the question I wanted to ask you because I've seen the value you provide and it's free, but it's great and valuable. And I also learn, everyone can learn. So my question was just, you're bringing so much value. Some other people might not like it but I get your point in that sense and you touched on libraries which is something I wanted to ask you about because you have a video I've done some research and you have a video where you tell people not to read books including your books but -hmm. at the same time you want to save libraries and this is where you're recording your podcasts from and libraries are initially aimed to disseminate information if we want to put it that way so how do you envision the future of libraries
0: so The UK in particular, libraries have a lot of parallel with how I think about the world. And so libraries are the only place in the UK where you can walk in and have the internet for free and get knowledge. We'll come back to books in a minute, get knowledge, and no one's going to ask you for anything in return, right? That is my company philosophy. You can walk into our environment, you can take what content is useful to you, and you can walk out the door and never give us anything, not even a like. You know, we won't mind. And that's what libraries represent in the UK. And actually, majority of the time around the world, that's what they represent, a community, a touch point that isn't after anything. So the philosophy of a library, to me, I really resonate with it. And I think it's actually, ironically, it sounds like an old infrastructure, but it's still ahead of its time. You walk in. I don't know you. You say you want to take this knowledge away. You sign a bit of paper saying you'll bring it back. You'll give back and you take it away. We don't do any credit checks. We don't double check your address with a validation. We don't follow you down the road three days later to find out where our book went. We trust you, right? And, and I feel like the libraries in that sense, it's not a place where books live. To me, it's a community and a place where knowledge lives. So the update for a library in my mind is really to put knowledge there in all formats. So one format is my podcast show. You know people want to listen to real life the people i interview pretty much all of them have books they tell everything you need to know in an hour in a podcast for free so you know you don't need to buy their book you don't need to buy my book and i think that's important i don't want anyone to walk into my library and have to buy a book that's not what libraries do you walk into the library and you pick up off the shelf what's useful to you yeah and so yes it used to be just books we don't need to restrict it to that anymore it can be all sorts of different types of content and so I think the library to me is a symbol of the mythology. And I think the way we're gonna save libraries is to make sure that we turn them into something useful going forward. And I think that something useful going forward is a free WeWorks without the co-working space piece, the community piece, a place where people can come to get the internet, a place where people can come to get knowledge. And in some cases, like we are doing right now, you can zoom into some of our libraries, book a 15 minute slot with a successful entrepreneur, and then zoom in and get that knowledge from that entrepreneur for 15 minutes and zoom out again. I mean, it doesn't have to be a physical place, although I still like a physical environment. And COVID's behind us. I think a physical environment adds a lot of value. But that's not the key. The key is access to free knowledge from mm-hmm. things that bring a lot of value for free. And that's the future of libraries, I think, um, giving that access to, particularly to people that want to become entrepreneurs. And with the shared economy, the gig economy and AI coming, we all need to learn to be entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, and you're talking about libraries, communities, and radio, and your clubhouse room is called radio. So let's talk a bit about clubhouse, because I know you're super active, again, on all social media platforms. I'm going to put all the links in the the blurb anyway. So let's start with this. Can you take us through the five steps to become a millionaire, and then Ah. the three additional steps to become a billionaire, and then the two more steps to become a trillionaire?
0: This is basically an inside joke within Clubhouse that you're kind of throwing out there a little bit because in Clubhouse there are a lot of different rooms and some of the rooms have postured themselves as you know multi-millionaires that can teach you how to do it in five easy steps. Well first of all my favourite joke is how do you become a millionaire? You start as a billionaire and you buy a football club in England. You'll soon become a millionaire but I think that the truth is you see it's an interesting thing this whole millionaire title because people want to hear it they want to hear about your success because it's a bit like going to a gym and listening to someone who's got no muscles telling you how to lift weights you know like you look at them like you know they're telling you telling me how to lift weights and look at them they're all scrawny and you know don't look like they've ever lifted a weight in their lives So, so there's some credibility issue and I think if I told you I was broke and hadn't made it and then why would you listen to me I would just caveat that some of the most interesting and insightful people are people that are broke today that tried something they've got a lot to teach but unfortunately in the society we're living in with the Instagram world and Instagram feed and everyone's showing off their you know their, their Ferraris and so on that's kind of what people initially need to see they need to have the image people like Grant Carbone are a good example I mean he the billionaire, you know, that's how he pictures himself in his new TV show. By his own net worth calculation, he only has 300 million dollars, so he's not a billionaire. So, you know, so, so but there's kind of this uh, there's two elements to it, right? There's the person themselves and their aspiration, he wants to be a billionaire, and he's made 300 million. That's already, you could argue, quite impressive, right? But equally on the other side, how's he made it, right? How's he made that money? He's made it by spending other people's money, right? So, I think there's, there's a very interesting dynamic going on, and on Clubhouse. There is a lot of people on there saying five steps to being a millionaire. And there isn't five steps to being a millionaire. There are five steps to good sales. There are five steps to building a brand. There are five steps to finding a co-founder. There are five steps to building a business you love. And and all of these things can come together to end up being potentially the 172 steps to becoming a millionaire. But the wrong question, it's not how to become a millionaire. The right question is, how to love what you do every day. That is the right question. So that's the rooms I try to be involved in. That's the rooms I'm trying to work with my team on Clubhouse. And I have a whole group of people that have created startup radio on Clubhouse. It's not just me. And the crew building this with me have exactly the same moral code as me. We don't want to promise people a get-rich-quick system. We want to provide people with insights into how to enjoy your day to day life, because that is success. If you enjoy what you do every day, you have won. forget how much money you've got. If you are enjoying what you do every day, then that will bring you happiness and that will bring you fulfillment. Money will never make you happy unless you're already happy. So that's kind of the important thing. It's definitely not about five steps to being a millionaire. It's about five steps to figuring out what are the five steps to do any one particular thing you need to do to make your day to day more enjoyable.
1: Yeah, no, that was a joke because I, I did one of my few TikToks a few weeks ago. Go on Clubhouse if you want to be a millionaire, billionaire, trillionaire, you know, because it was like a bit too much. But then you start figuring out, okay, which rooms you want to right. be involved in and who you want to follow and stuff like that. However, the millionaire thing works for you because even on LinkedIn, it's a hook to get people to listen to you as well. So if you really are a millionaire, because, you know, we have you no, know, you in your case, Right, you say it because you have a story to tell. It's a hook, and people will listen to you in that sense. So it's also the way how you present it. But on Clubhouse, you also mentioned because I liked this room where everyone was just sharing stories, and you mentioned going into the comics business, mm. and you learned a lot. You, you said you learned more from your mistakes than your successes. But also you learn so much from your latest success, which is Fluid that was acquired by PwC. Can you share some of the key learnings?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, my comic book business I've built up. I love the journey. And I think the lesson I always have for people is the journey is the most enjoyable part of any, I mean, going on holiday and stuff. You know, sometimes it is the experience of the holiday itself. That's the journey. And then when you come back, I actually know people that don't enjoy the holiday because it's stressful. If you've got kids, for example, a lot of work to get there. When you get there, a lot going on. You haven't got your normal system or your normal food. And it's all actually quite stressful during the holiday. And then when they come back and they reflect on the holiday, they actually enjoy it. They they look at the pictures. They remember this moment, the sunset, whatever it was. And I think that's what it's like building a business. Sometimes it's so hectic building the business that people forget to enjoy the moment of being on holiday. I'm maybe mixing up the analogies, but... But when I built the comic book business, today I look back, the business itself was a failure, a big failure, but I really enjoyed the process of building it and I learned so much about the industry. But at the time I thought I had a bit of bad luck because the comic book up to a point where it was quite popular and then we almost got a movie deal. This is 10 years ago with Harvey Weinstein. Of course now Harvey Weinstein, everyone knows who he really is, but back then 10 years ago, he was the guy that turned things into movies. He was the guy that collected the Oscars Along with the stars at the Oscars, you know, he was a kingmaker, and so he was interested in making our comic book into a movie, and so uh, that was all very exciting. We thought we were going to take out a comic book and you know make a hundred million and see it on the big screen. It was all very exciting, and then it didn't happen. It fell apart, and based on the back of the fact we thought we were going to get it made into a movie, we overspent and the business collapsed. But I still hold the comic book in my hand, love it. I still look back at the experience of trying to build something from scratch like that. Well, the original premise of it was: what if Superman landed in China, or Batman was born in India? You know, try and create a cultural exposure to superheroes. No, it was interesting. People, like, oh, and Superman would be evil if he was if he landed in China, wouldn't he? i mean, like, why would he be evil? Because he landed in China. You know, you kind of, you uncover racism in there. Anyway, that side, I think it's really interesting to try and do something and then it fail. And at the time when the deal fell apart with Harvey Weinstein, I thought, wow, I'm so I've got such bad luck. And now I look back and I reflect and realize that sometimes bad luck is good luck in disguise. I reflect and realize that actually I had a lot of luck that that did not happen. Otherwise, I would be linked to him today. And I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad I didn't have to deal with such a person. So yeah, so I think fate is a fantastic thing. And failure is a fantastic thing. I love the experience of failure almost as much as I love the experience of success. And you mentioned fluid. When I sold that business to PwC, in large part, I felt like, I had succeeded when I received the money and over time a little bit like I'd failed because I think selling it's like selling one of your children that's
1: exactly one question I asked in this podcast I released how was it to sell your baby yeah
0: I I mean the baby was 15 years old so um, in part there's also an element of like you know if you love something you've got to let it go and and PwC have taken the business and done amazing things with it made it global and done amazing things but I, I feel like you know, for me, it was a large part of my identity and I used to build a lot of other businesses on the back of it. So I had this core business that was profitable success. I would invest in and support other businesses on the basis of it. So when I sold it and I sold everything, I mean, in 2017, pretty much I sold all my assets and um, liquidated and, uh, you know, and in part, it was wonderful to suddenly be sitting on cash but also there was an identity problem there for me for a while because I'd always been Simon Scrib who built Fluid or Simon Scrib who started Nest or Simon Scrib who did this, that, and the other. So definitely, you know, the beginning of it, of the journey of that new experience, it was difficult. But I think over time, I've come to appreciate that everything is stages. And I'm glad I've, I've now got the resources to build what I consider a very purposeful platform. That's why I've called it the Purposeful Project. <laughs> but it, it did take me quite a while to get over the lack of identity linked to a company. But I soon realized in, in the end, it's actually quite dangerous to link yourself to a thing. Um, I'm not Simon Scribb, the guy who started Fluid or Simon Scribb, the guy that co-founded Nest. I am Simon Scrib, and and at this stage in my life, I'm here to give back. And it just took a bit of time, I think, to learn to live without the child in my life.
1: And you're building your brand about around Simon Squib now. And one thing as well, I agree with you though, is things happen for a reason. If it doesn't happen, something better will come after. So it's okay. But if we always regret, it doesn't make sense. The other thing as well is you sold uh, your company and you moved from Hong Kong back to London, mm-hmm. where Simon Squib was known in Asia with fluid and nest and different things. And now you're starting in Europe and you're also becoming a social media influencer, growing organically. So how is this journey?
0: Yeah, it's actually a very interesting one. Now I'm English, but I spent 20 years in England and then I moved to Hong Kong. I was 20 years in Hong Kong and I had all my big success in Hong Kong, in Asia. So again that was another shock i think you know i remember complaining in hong kong when i walk around hong kong i go to a coffee shop for example someone would always come and pitch to me their business or kind of tap me on the shoulder and say hey Sam, i got you know can just ask you something and i would moan about it a little bit like you know oh just you know why am i so popular it's so annoying and then i came to england and no one knew me and and there was definitely a couple of months where that was kind of nice and then slowly but surely i was like Just want someone to say, oh, hi, it's Simon. Oh, how are, you know, just someone to spot me and, you know, realize who I was. And, but I think it's like anything. When you come off social media for a week, the first three days are the hardest. You have that addiction twitch. And I've come off social media quite a few times in my life. But I think over, by day four, by day five, by day six, you're wondering, what were you doing 14 hours a day on social media? You know, and I think in some respects, when you have a change, you kind of reset. It's like going from a million followers to zero again. It's actually quite a good thing to do. You don't want to let the following, you don't want to get lost in the popularity. You don't want to start becoming what your popularity has defined you as. I'm far from perfect. But Sometimes when people see that you've been successful, they kind of look at you like this, your advice is golden or everything you're saying is perfect. I quite like the fact that in England, I can start from zero and build up my reputation again, prove myself again. It kind of keeps you alive, right? Whereas in Hong Kong, one of the reasons I left, in a way, I conquered it. You know, I can make a phone call of anyone in that city. They'd know me and I'd be able to make something happen. That is not a challenge. And it sounds pretty bizarre, but in England, it's taken me three years to build up a reputation here and build a network of people here that say, oh, Simon Scrib, yeah, I trust him. And I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that challenge of, you know, reinventing myself, proving myself, and not sitting back on my laurels and saying, well, you know what I've done in Hong Kong? I've, I've built mega businesses. You know who I am? But it's an interesting balance between leveraging your past to make your future successful and not over leveraging your past to make your successful future happen. So for me, I really enjoy actually going back to zero and, and trying it. I kind of suggest to everyone, they try it at least once or twice in their life. Just get rid of all your possessions, get rid of everything. If, if you've got kids, it might be a bit different. But You know, I think sometimes like if you own a car and I've owned some really nice cars in my time, the first week I love it. The second week, that car slowly begins to own me. Like, oh, it's got a scratch. Oh, no, it's, yeah, that's annoying. Oh, I, it's something wrong with it. I've taken it to the garage and spent three hours of my day, you know, waiting for my car to be fixed. And then something else happens. And then it's like, suddenly, I work for that car, right? And I think sometimes that's what happens when you build up a lot of things, including street cred. You know, you end up... A lot of musicians have this problem when they're younger years. They become famous for that type of music. And if they're not careful, they're going to be doing that type of music until they die. And actually, that's not the sort of music they want to do in their 30s. They're okay to do it when they were in their teens. In their 30s, they don't want to do it, right? So I think sometimes you have to throw away the past in, in a positive way and start fresh. And that's what I quite enjoyed about moving back to England. It was refreshing. Now, slowly, I actually had someone on the street yesterday stop me and say, Oh, you're that guy on TikTok. So uh, that's another experience altogether. So but part of me was like, oh, that's cool. And the other part of me was like, oh, no, this is a bit creepy.
1: When things get back to normal, people will come take pictures with you. Did it happen in Hong Kong?
0: Yeah, and I I guess that'll be the upside or downside of fame, I guess. Right. But I don't want to get lost in that. I I want to continue to just bring value regardless of whether or not it brings me fame.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And you mentioned you moved to Hong Kong. I'm curious to know why Hong Kong? And we spoke about luck and gut. And I want to ask you about feng shui, actually, because it plays a major role in Hong Kong, especially in its architectural development. Yeah. Do you practice feng shui yourself?
0: Yes, I do now. I remember when I got a, we hired a feng shui master to come to our office in Hong Kong when we opened up a very fancy office in Hong Kong. And I'm quite a minimalist. And I remember when we brought the feng shui master in, he basically with this really swanky silver blue cool office and first thing he said was you have got to stick a massive water fountain front entrance because that's apparently how money stays in the room and there was an instinct in me to say you know this is just total rubbish and I'm not doing that to our beautiful office but we did it and why because I kind of feel like you know if you can increase your chances of luck subconsciously then do it and I think for a lot of people in my office that was an important thing to ensure luck as a company. So we looked out for luck after that, as opposed to looked out for bad luck, right? When something lucky happens, like, oh, want lucky we put that water fountain in, you know, and, and, and we kind of ignored the bad luck as, oh, you know, the two elephants in the corner, which we had to put two elephants in the corner, they would absorb the bad luck. So let's not worry about that. So I think in my view, Feng Shui worked just because on a psychological level, people felt like you'd done everything you could to give yourself the best chance of success. And um, I think that's the primary question answered. What was the first bit again? Now I've actually...
1: What took you to Hong Kong?
0: Basically, the simple story is I had a friend living in Hong Kong and he said to me, come and sleep on my couch and experience Hong Kong. And at the same time, I had someone I knew in Hong Kong who had an opportunity for me to do a bit of consultancy work. So I took the opportunity to go and take the bit of consultancy work in Hong Kong and go sleep on my friend's couch. And when I got there it was just before the handover of Hong Kong to back to China. So it was British owned and British ran for hundred years and it was being handed back to the Chinese. And when I got there, it was just an exciting time because everybody who was living there for the last 10, 15 years was leaving. And so suddenly all these services that were being originally serviced by the British people living there, they all left. So as an entrepreneur, that meant there was just huge amounts of opportunity suddenly in that market. And so I took the opportunity to start an agency called Fluid, which basically was helping people with quality marketing, strategy, even branding. And then we came up with a whole slew of marketing ideas for companies, because again, a lot of the brain power that was in Hong Kong left, because they thought it was going to become a communist state, tanks were going to roll in, the laws were going to change. And they didn't at that point, they actually have in recent times changed, but... At that moment, for, I would say 20 years, from 1997 to 2017, when I left, Hong Kong didn't change much, but what was created was loads of opportunities because China opened up to Hong Kong. So you could go into China much easier from Hong Kong, and frankly, from China out to Hong Kong to the rest of the world, was also suddenly being made to happen because China now owned Hong Kong. So it gave it a chance to have Hong Kong as its gateway to the world and vice versa. So for the 20 years I was there, it was just an incredible time. You know, big companies like Alibaba came up from China. Alibaba's four times bigger than Amazon, right? Just to give some context to your listeners. People don't quite comprehend the size of China, the size of the market, the size of the opportunity and Hong Kong's right in the middle of it. And so I basically caught a wave when I got there and I just couldn't leave because it was so exciting. I woke up in Hong Kong, I often tell people. I sat on the harbour front of Hong Kong, anyone has been to Hong Kong will know what I mean. And literally something in my brain woke up, the opportunity. Hong Kong, when you look at it, it's got no natural resources, nothing. It's literally a fishing village. And it's turned into this incredible mega city and all created from someone's mind to reality because it's got no natural resources. And so that concept really kind of gripped me in Hong Kong that you could have any idea and make it happen. The resources were there to make it happen. You just had to have the imagination. And so that's why I ended up, you know, starting 17 companies or so there because there's just so many opportunities. And and that's what I just couldn't leave it once I got there and discovered this incredible opportunity.
1: Thank you for that because I didn't know. And it's basically just from saying yes to an invitation. What if you didn't say no? And that would have been a cost and A lot and I, I'm just of people thought I shouldn't
0: go, by the way. I had some really ridiculous comments looking back. Oh, okay. Where, you know, someone I was working with, uh, who I actually really liked, but they hadn't travelled. Is you know, I always tell people to only take advice from people whose lives you want, right? It's one other lesson I've learned. And And this particular person, very nice person, but they were not living the life I actually wanted, but they gave me advice I did listen to for about 10 minutes, which was... Oh, you don't want to go to Hong Kong, Simon, because you know they've got triads there. And as soon as you get off the plane, you know what they do? They inject you with drugs so you become a drug addict. And then you'll be dependent. You'll be working for the triads. And honestly, I believed this weird, wacky theory and almost didn't go. I got scared. I don't want to become a drug slave to the triads. But it was all bullshit. They didn't know what they were talking about. They'd read something on, you know, whatever they'd read it. And it was just bullshit. You know, like anything, there's bad luck. Those things do happen, I guess. But, you know, that's not what that city is about. And that's not what my life was. It was completely the opposite. I had an amazing life and amazing experience there culturally, you know, woke me up. And so, yeah, but it is interesting. I think when people give you advice, like, don't do that. Don't, don't start that business. Very risky. You just get a job. But look at the person giving you advice. Do you want to be them?
1: Going back to fluid, because we were talking about that and uh, the fact that, you know, you adopted Feng Shui to support the local culture as well. In a certain sense, if you yeah. know everyone wanted it, why did PwC buy your company or brand? I should say, because you built a brand, obviously, over 16 years, they could have done something themselves. Now, I'm asking you this question because I worked in the corporate world. I worked at Deloitte Digital, actually, so kind of big four. And they do acquire companies. But what made them get attracted to you?
0: It's a good question. And it's a complicated answer. The simplest way to explain the dynamics, I think first of all, they could have done it themselves. No doubt. What I had built that was harder for them to replicate quickly was a great team, which, you know, yes, they could have paid more and taken our team, but it would have taken them a long time because we had a culture with an ethos. And I think they could have hired all our people. They could have done that over time or tried to hire an equivalent team. But then we would be their competition right so it wouldn't necessarily make their lives easier even if they managed to get half our staff we'd still be their competition the second thing is we had case studies that they did not have things that we had done for big institutional brands that they did not have and then i think it was interesting because i mean that was the original rationale for them buying the business right a lot of smart businesses buy turnover as well i'm an expert in building businesses what i call zero to ten Right. Building a business from 10 to 100 is a different skill set completely. And actually, in my view, much easier. The zero to ten bit business that you're not quite sure how you're going to make money. You're not quite sure how you're going to be different. You're not quite sure how you're going to build the brand out. It doesn't have any recognition yet. You know, I remember the first time I rang up Fortune magazine to try and win them as the client and they just wouldn't take my phone call. You know, who the hell is fluid? Who the hell is Simon Squibb? You know, we just don't care. We, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We're busy. And, and going from that to getting a meeting, to getting a client, to getting revenue, to getting proof of content, that is hard. And PwC didn't have the credibility in the space we were in. So they can buy it or they can build it. If they built it, they'd have us as competition. It would take them two or three years. So they're smart. They buy time. They buy time. The most yeah. bad thing we've got on this planet, they buy it, right? And then once they've got the system in place and no competition, then they can scale it, right? Because they bought the competition. They've done two things at once. They bought scale and they bought the competition. But interestingly enough, I did have quite a personal conversation with the team after the deal was done. And I said to them, you know, you could have done this all on your own. And they're like, "Yep, yeah, we planned it all out internally. We could have definitely done it. Um, but the one thing, Simon, that we felt you really had that we couldn't put a value on, we tried to, but we couldn't, was culture. The culture of the business that we created was in itself a valuable thing. And that's something a lot of people underrate You know, a lot of people, that's why I always tell people build a brand, not a business. Yeah. Brand culture is so valuable if you get it right. And I think it's something like Nike, for example. I mean, everyone can make shoes. I can make shoes cheaper than Nike. Or I can make shoes like Nike and I could charge half the price for exactly the same shoe. But and still be a very profitable business. So why is the Nike shoe worth twice as much and people will happily pay it? Brand
1: Culture. Yeah, absolutely. They
0: stand for something, right? And a lot of the things that we did in Fluid, PwC couldn't have done in the early days because it would have gone against their kind of their own structure as one of the big four. You know that. It becomes quite bureaucratic. They have to be that way, very diplomatic because it has to be that way. Yeah. We weren't. We were rebels. And no, it's very powerful. When you can do that because that's something these big companies can only buy they cannot replicate it on they cannot create it on their own they can throw money at it but we all know money doesn't win when building a business i know plenty of businesses that have failed that have been well funded against businesses that had no funding and so it's not about funding it's about culture
1: yeah no absolutely it's the mindset is so different so yeah i get what you mean in that sense and i watched your latest podcast with uh, nick jenkins I watch him on on Dragon's Den. I Mm. think he's brilliant and and I love the podcast and I'm going to link it here. And there was an interesting, not going to say argument, but vision. So he believes in sole founders, solepreneurs, whereas many investors prefer to invest in teams, in co-founders. And you said you built businesses. You were always involved with someone. You always had a co-founder. So how do you invest in people? Did this influence the way you think or so?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, Nick Jenkins is a brilliant business person. And he has something I think I don't have. He has all-round skills. And so he has the ability, for example, to look at the numbers And also understand the marketing side. He said it in the podcast. He he wasn't really, he didn't know much about marketing, but he learned it. And so I've gone a slightly different route. I'm more specialized. I always hire an accountant or get a partner in that does the financial side of the business. It's just, I prefer it. I could learn it. I'm almost as smart as Nick Jenkins. I could probably apply myself to it, but I don't want to. And it's not my area of enjoyment. So I like to have a partner that takes care of the things I don't like to do. Nick Jenkins was able to do both. So I think every time anyone gives you advice in life, not only do you need to look at the person and say, do you want their life? There is another element to it, which is which bit of advice applies to my personality? And so I enjoy working with someone else. I enjoy sharing the highs and lows with someone else. And so I've got three brothers. They're all divorced, right? I've been with my partner 20 years. I like committing. I like making things work in that commitment. And I enjoy the challenge of having an intellectual equal in both my life partner and my business partner and so i get sharper you know rubbering up against someone who's also sharp and i enjoy that process so but when it comes to investing there is no formula for it i have invested in three founders two founders one founder i've done every structure there is at least once there is no rule and i know a lot of investment companies have rules around this but I think it all comes down to like, if I meet Nick Jenkins, and I can see he's an all rounder, he's got the ability to listen to external advice, as he did with his board of advisors, then it's a winner. But if I meet someone, you know, who is a sole founder, not Nick Jenkins, they're not listening to someone else, they're not taking any external advice or opinion, and they're very insular, then I probably wouldn't invest in them. So it's not really about whether or not they co-founder or not. I think it's all to do with really the purpose of the business is important to me. The exact idea of why invest the purpose of the business, the person behind the business and their moral code, will that person or persons be fun to work with? I like to have fun. We have a laugh, we enjoy the process. I don't want it to be always you know, difficult. And then, you know, finally, can I help that entrepreneur? You know, can I add value? And so if they're not listening, <laughs> To me, I'm not saying I have to do what I say, but if they're not even listening to me. Then there's no point in me being involved because I'm just going to be annoying to them. Right. So, and then it won't be fun and all the other things I've just mentioned won't happen. So, so that's my investment thesis really, you know, like my top thing is moral code and having a laugh, you know, to say it in an English way, having fun. Which when I speak to some investors who take this investing business very seriously, they almost laugh at me. The first thing people normally ask me is what sector do you invest in? Don't care. You know, I care about, is the person a decent person? Are they doing something purposeful? And can I have fun if I work with them? But that's because I'm basically focusing on investing, enjoying my day-to-day, whereas a lot of people who are coming out of the finance world and investing are looking at ways of making money and they're missing the point. You'll make money if you enjoy doing it because you won't stop doing it because it's not fun anymore. And persistence is the key to luck, right? And how do you get persistence? You enjoy what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I like the way you put that because I'm involved with many startups and they mostly look for a co-founder. And if if they don't, it's like they almost want to stop what they're doing and they assume that no one will invest within them and so on. And then on the other hand, I I had someone approach me to become a venture partner in a new fund and it was so focused. And I also believe in diversification in that sense, especially if you're pre-seed. And it's like, no, no, that's how it should be. But why? No specific reason, just because I know about this. Yes, but what about the other people involved? You know, so no, thank you for that. By the way, I didn't ask you to introduce yourself because I thought, you know, you share so much, but I don't know if you would like to add anything. We didn't talk about the purposeful project as a brand. Anything you would like to add
0: No, I I think, you know, it's uh, the purpose of project itself. I say its mission is clear. We are here to help people start a business of their own and make sure no one feels alone doing it. It's so important to me that um, entrepreneurs don't feel alone. I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are going through difficult times right now. They can't go home and complain to their family because they don't want their family to worry. They can't complain to their staff. They don't want their staff to worry. And of course, they can't complain to their customers because they don't want them to stop giving them business. So they get a bit caught and trapped. And so... You know, if I was to give one message out there to anybody listening, if you've got a business or you're thinking of starting a business, you don't need to feel alone. You can reach out to us and we will try to help you and make you part of our community and support you. And so that's the main message, really. I think that other than that, you know, we are building out what I call entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. So a lot of people that have experience and knowledge and feel like they can contribute, then I'm always happy to hear from people like that. that want to give and don't expect anything in return then, you know, I'd love to hear from people like that. I've got a crew now of people like that, but that is always a person I'm looking out for. So if there's anybody out there listening that wants to be a part of this mission and give back and has a bit of time to spare to give back, then then reach out.
1: Thank you so much for your time and patience and, you know, answering everything with authenticity. I really enjoyed that.
0: Nice to chat to you again.
1: Thank you. This is the end of this episode with Simon Squibb. We spoke about so many things and heard about so many experiences and learnings, but most importantly, his journey starting at 15 and retiring at 40. Taking risks is key to having more luck, and knowing your destination is so important as well. Thank you so much for tuning in and really appreciate having Simon on Gut Talks. You are listening to Gut
0: Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.